Are we ready? Welcome to episode one of Direct Peter Roberts. I am Coraline Ada M. Key, and I am so excited to be with you today. Coraline, that is not the name of the show. What? Direct Coder Roberts is an awesome name, but you know it's even greater than that. Greater than code. You say so. <laughs> and no one on the podcast can see all of us cheering and waving our hands on camera. I love it. <laughs> I'm Justin Tron, and I am super excited to be on Greater Than Code today. And with us, we also have our new panelists. Oh, wait, we're all new panelists. Jay Bobo from Columbus, who is better than David everything. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hi, this is Jay. And I am having a great time hanging out with some amazing people. I'm handing it off to Sam Livingston Gray. Thank you, Jay. Uh, I would also like to point out that uh, Greater Than Code is also cheaper than therapy. And uh, speaking of therapy, let me introduce David Brady. Good morning, everybody, or afternoon or evening, wherever you may be. I don't have anything witty to say, which is, it, it's, I'm trying out a new thing. We'll just see how it works. Probably won't carry it into episode two. Speaking of therapy, yes. I should probably just introduce our guest, shall I? So today we've got Noel Rappin on the call. And I actually wrote a thing for him, which is Noel Rappin has written five technical books, including Rails 4 Test Prescriptions and the awesomely named Master Space and Time with JavaScript. He's been through the web technology boom at Optiva and Groupon and currently works as the Director of Development at Table XI. His blog, responsibly called Noel Rappin Writes Here, is at noelrappin.com. His current book is called Take My Money, Accepting Payments on the Web, and he's here to talk to us about that today. But... Before we talk about that, we need to address this shifty business of Noel holding a PhD in educational technology from Georgia Tech and not what? telling anybody. So, Dr. Rappin, what's all this then? I do have a PhD from Georgia Tech. It's in educational technology and user experience. And it was back in the day when Newtons were a cool idea and professors were doing research on what you would do if everybody had a Newton, which back in the day they Newton called... like the unit of measure? No, like the Apple Newton. <laughs> Oh my God, those were so amazing. My boss had one like in the 90s. It was yeah. so cool. Not the professor I was working with, but there was somebody there at the time who was uh, doing research into what would happen if everybody around you had a Newton, which back in that day they called ubiquitous computing and now we call like life. So not like a big Newton. No. This was a long time ago. I did research into teaching uh, chemical engineers how to design pipe systems and research into teaching object-oriented programming to developers. And now I only use the title sarcastically. So if somebody calls me an idiot, I will say that is Dr. Idiot to you. <laughs> nice. 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 Have you ever said uh, it's Dr. Rappin if you're nasty? No. Media, oh. <laughs> <laughs> my gift. My gift. I like the new Dave. This is cool. <laughs> so, um, Noel, I want to point out an episode from our past, which I hope is funny at this point in time. I once had the privilege of interviewing you for a job that you didn't get. And um, do you remember that? <laughs> yes, that is all true. Working for a Chicago startup. And the reason that you did not get hired is that you didn't do open source work, regardless of like your contributions in the form of like your writing and your blog posts and your all the ways you gave back. You didn't have an open source portfolio on GitHub. And that was like a red flag for people. I did not actually know that that was the reason why. 
Yes. <laughs> I just assumed you didn't like me. Oh, I loved you. I love you, Noel. Yes. I, you know, what's actually funny about that is that my GitHub portfolio is even worse than that because especially then, uh, not only do I not have open source contributions, but I also have like deliberately terrible code that I use as workshop examples up there. Nice. So my GitHub portfolio is actually a negative indicator of my programming skill. So I am my own rang rang. I love it. That's a great example of why you should not use GitHub as your resume. That's like so problematic on so many levels. I feel like we should do a show on that. I, th- I like that idea. If only you knew people who worked at GitHub. I just passed the six-month mark. I'm so excited. Wow, has it been six months already? Yeah. Wow. So, Noel, about this new book, I understand it has a little bit to do with e-commerce, kind of like touches on that. <laughs> so, yeah, I have a new book out. It's currently in beta from Pragmatic. It will be probably physically published in February, but you can get it now in beta. It is called Take My Money, Accepting Payments on the Web. It's about accepting payments. It's about the kind of applications that you write that use things like the Stripe API to take in credit cards and payments like that. And it's also about all of the things that you need to do in your application beyond calling the Stripe API in order to manage money. So how to manage money as data, how to manage transactions as workflows, how to deal with failures, how to deal with administration, reporting, all the things that take you from, yes, I can make a Stripe API call to I have a robust application that can take in a fair amount of transactions without falling over. Well, that sounds very cool. I just have to I just have to derail us for a moment, though, and just say that the title is a total letdown. We go from mastering space and time with JavaScript to, like, allowing people to give you small amounts of cash. <laughs> well, Why? Nobody said they had to be small amounts. Time, yeah, that's, that's true. true. But time so, is, like, where do you go from there, though? Time is money, Sam. Time is yeah. money. Uh, I was actually really surprised that they let me keep Take My Money as the title. I actually submitted it as Shut Up and Take My Money. Uh, <laughs> Somewhere along the way that uh, got taken off. Master Space and Time is named that way because I self-published it and I wanted to come up with like the least tech publisher name I could think of. Like I didn't want it to sound like pragmatic JavaScript or uh, something like that. So I came up with a name that is very memorable, but kind of long and unwieldy. Does that mean that for my book, it's not likely that I'll be able to get the title, Be a Compassionate Coder, You Fuck? Yeah, that's problematic. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> you sure that one's not taken? I don't know. I, I would check the domain registrations and see if that uh, domain's available. So. On it. So anyways, what happened to me was that I actually started doing an application like this that had like serious business logic around Authorization Gateway API. And uh, I actually inherited it with the API call intact. And I thought that the hard work was done because it was there. And then I quickly realized that that was very naive and started to run up against some of these issues You know, of how do you protect against a database failure after you've charged the credit card? Uh, invalidating the transaction on your end, which is mildly terrifying because you're charging a user for something that you then potentially have no record of. And what I found was it was really hard to get really good information on what other people were doing to mitigate this to the point where I kind of at one point sort of doubted whether I was even seeing a real problem and kind of wondered whether I was just not understanding how easy this was, but eventually decided it actually was hard and there was just nobody who was telling good stories about how to do it the right way. And eventually I realized that I had enough stories like this and enough people who I'd talked to who had done similar things that it was worth putting it all in a book form. It's fascinating that you thought it would be easy because you were already able to take people's money in that application. You already had the payment and integration. But it turns out that the hard part is everything that can go wrong. I love that the book focuses on that, that it introduces the happy path. And then chapter five, bam, but this is the real world. 
Yeah. Dealing with failure. You know, the long-term difference in how well this stuff is going to hold up has to do with beyond sort of the normal coding requirements of, of whether it's good code or not, the ways in which an application like this lives and dies are how well it deals with failure and how well it deals with administration. And I had, I had a really great opportunity to interview Dave Thomas about the Pragmatic Bookstore as part of this. Uh, and he said that that they're out, I think he said that their administrative code is twice the size of their user-facing code. And I absolutely believe that. Like administrators make this stuff really complicated because they basically live to mess with business logic. Like that's pretty much anytime they're making a change, you know, they're changing existing business logic, they're changing a price, they're changing a sale. And you need to be able to sort of validate that you have a sane data set even after the administrators do whatever they will. There's a zillion more code paths in the administration because the administrators need to do a zillion more different things than the users. And the same with failures. There's tons more different failures than happy paths. Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting about that is that there are a lot more ways that things can fail than the ways that failure can actually show up. It's sometimes easier to like clean up the footprints than try and figure out what made them. So sometimes it's... <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes if you can recognize that like we had at one point in the system that it was a rare condition where somebody could get a privilege that they weren't entitled to or, or a discount. I don't remember exactly what it was. And it was very, very hard to diagnose what the problem was, what was causing it. But it was really easy to tell what had happened after it had happened. Like we could see it in the database immediately. And that was fine. It happened like once or twice a year. And it was cheaper to actually have the tracker to say, hey, this went wrong, let's correct it, than it was to spend two days trying to track down some sort of whatever rare race condition or something was causing this weird case. So sometimes it is cheaper to fix the symptoms rather than go after the actual problem. That is awesome. I want to remind our brand new listeners, and we love every each and every one of you, that um, we are listener supported currently. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash greater than code, all one word. We have some fabulous um, rewards for people who contribute. We have a patron-only Slack that you can join in on, and you can actually pose questions for our upcoming guests. We will give you shout-outs and tweets to thank you. At the $25 level, we actually will add you to our patrons page. $50 gets you a shout-out on the show and Twitter and a t-shirt and sticker pack, which is pretty amazing. So give what you can. Even if it's only a dollar, that will get you into our patron-only Slack. And we love you all and hope that you will support us so we can continue bringing you awesome podcasts. Wait, wait, wait. There are stickers? There will be stickers. I'm so tempted to just shout out random things that might be benefits just to have you guys have to add the, edit them out or whatever. Like, Go for it. We'd love your ideas. Yeah, we call that ideation. <laughs> At the $20 level, you get an elephant. No. no. <laughs> you get Donate a $150 you get a and get a Sam will dye his beard. That's awesome. We've actually talked about that as a perk. So that is very possible. Get to pick the color that Sam will dye his beard. For a month. Users pledging above $10 before the first week in October will get Noel Rappin's home phone number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a start, didn't I? The I just, docs I reward. Yeah. So in our patron-only Slack that I mentioned, we had a question for you, Noel, that came from David Bach. He said, tools for creating online businesses have become incredibly accessible. I can have a great business idea. Spend a few hours coding it up, authenticate with a service like Auth0, host with a service like Heroku, and lost, launch my business the same day I had the idea. But then I run into the reality of credit cards, merchant accounts, payment gateways, etc. What is the quickest path to accepting payments online? And are there any drawbacks to getting something up fast? Right. So this is actually kind of like before you get into the stuff that you need that the book covers. But there are a couple paths that will let you come in really fast. 
Stripe has their full credit card form version of their JavaScript thing, which is super easy. You just drop it in and it gives you a really pretty credit card form. And then you're using Stripe's dashboard for all of your administration. But it's really easy to set up. In a normal web situation, you'd probably have to integrate it into a shopping cart a little bit, but it works fine for taking payments. If you want to outsource the whole shopping cart, there's all kinds of services that do that. Things like DPD or Shopify, I think that let you outsource the entire shopping cart. So like my self-publish on my site currently goes through DPD. Uh, There's also Squarespace Commerce, things like that, that are services that will take the whole workflow for you. And then they're also handling your administration. So there's a couple of different levels there before you get into actually handling the API call on your own server side. Customization is one of the trade-offs. And you also lose, if you have specific business logic around inventory or accessibility or pricing or things like that, like the more things like that you have, the harder it is to integrate one of the -the off-the-shelf services. But it's a good way to get started. The Stripe dashboard in particular is really nice. You can do refunds from it. You you get a sense of your users from it. Your your users can register with it and Stripe manages all of that. And that can take you a ways until you feel like you need the custom data. Your long-term trade-off is probably going to be getting the data out of Stripe into whatever you're continuing to use ongoing, but it's certainly a great way to get started. Yay, Stripe. I work at Stripe and I think Stripe is awesome. Stripe's docs are fantastic. The, the documentation they have is, is really, really well done. Also, you can get started testing with no approvals or process. Yes. Testing is a really interesting subject that you cover pretty extensively in your book, Noel. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? So there's a couple of different issues uh, with testing payment issues, one of which is just the generic issue they have of testing any third-party service. You know, you're trying to test something that is making a network call, so you want to set that up in such a way, either using, in, in Ruby, you can use the VCR gem to make the third-party network call and then store the results that the next time the test runs, you're using the stored result rather than actually going out to the network for a new call. That works great. But then you also have the specific issues of you really are doing something that potentially has real world consequences, you know, in terms of potentially charging a credit card. So you need to be careful about how you test. Stripe provides a lot of uh, specific pieces of data to test specific failure modes. So you can do things like put in test with a specific credit card number that triggers a specific kind of failure or card decline or a zip code that triggers a fraud detector or things like that. Those are also really helpful in terms of testing. But a lot of it has to do with just designing your application so that all of your interactions with the payment gateway go through one point uh, so that you can test your code more or less in isolation of the third-party networking tool and then also test the third-party networking tool separately. So you mentioned design. And uh, one thing I noticed in your book, you're using a pattern that is kind of like something I've seen called uh, gourmet service objects or like what some people were talking about three or four years ago with DCI. This whole idea of like a missing layer between controllers and models. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the way the book gets set up is we create almost everything that we do in the book goes through what we call a workflow object. So the controller, most of what the controller does is create one of these workflow objects, pass it the data, the workflow object interacts with active record, handles the business logic, uh, and returns essentially a success or failure code back to the controller. So there's a couple reasons why I do that. One of which is to try and get the business logic isolated in Ruby objects that are not active record objects. Uh, so they're somewhat easier to test. It turns out that it's actually just because of the way Rails works, it's still kind of hard to test them in total isolation from the database but it's somewhat easier to test them separately. And it also means you wind up with a bunch of relatively small, well-defined classes rather than just having like one generic payment class that winds up being 500 lines long. You have an accepts payment class. Uh, you have like a refunds class. 
um, and things like that. It's also helpful. There's one other way in which this is helpful. One of the ways to mitigate failure is to have that process run as a series of very small background jobs. So you have one small background job that does the setup of your data, one small background job that calls the third-party gateway, one small background job that then notifies the user of success or failure. And that's a lot easier to do if you have those things sort of isolated into their own objects. And then you get some protection against failure cases and certain kinds of error checking become easier. Did you consider calling the book Practical Object-Oriented Design for (laughs) E-Commerce? Now I kind of wish I had. That seems to be a real popular title. 99 bottles of (laughs) e-commerce. For those of you Uh, just tuning in now, you're listening to Classy (laughs) 107.2, where we're interviewing Noel Rappin, author of Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Other People's Money. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Noel, I really do like the way you like work these design recommendations in with the actual like objective of the book so that people can think about them in context. I also like the way each design recommendation is expressed as a trade-off. That seems to be like a theme. Yeah, it's well, like I said, I think I I think of this book as secretly being about designing Rails applications. Um, you know, Sam alluded to the sort the the structure of the book. The first chapter of the book really is all about getting the design and data model right even before you start taking payments. So it, it's actually the first chapter I think is called Not Taking Payments on the Web. And it's really just about setting up the data model and setting up this workflow and, and talking about why you'd want to design an application that way. And I think it's really important as somebody who comes across with a certain amount of authority from writing a book, like people are going to receive this as coming from a certain amount of authority. I think it's really important to say like, not this is the right answer, but this is the thing I did here uh, this may not match your experience. You might also want to look at this option. You can't do that too much because it gets really confusing for novice people. But I think it's really beneficial to say, like, this is why I did this. Your logic may vary. Your needs may vary. Uh, and you might want to explore doing something else. Right. Because you mentioned early at the beginning of the show that there weren't any real stories out there, solid stories of how people take payments and deal with failures and do all the hard parts of that. And that led you to write the book? Yeah, I think we kind of talk, we talk a lot in software design about business logic and we kind of hand wave, this is how we need to manage the business logic. But literally, when you're talking about this payment stuff, you're literally talking about the business logic. Like, it really is the actual logic that keeps the business afloat. So it involves, like, sort of zooming in on that thing that we sort of abstract away when we talk about principles of software design and really having to think about, like, we actually need to take into account what's going to happen when somebody comes and says, hey, we got a big order, but it's 10% off. Can we handle that? Or, like, there's a specific kind of trade-off, for instance, around like data validation. Like a a lot of people put a lot of database validations in their application and it turns out that that's constraining. Like each one of those database validations is a way that a transaction can fail if something happens the way that you don't want. And you need to think about whether that data validation is actually worth potentially failing a transaction over or whether it's something that you can live with and and mitigate later on. I'm not a big fan of um, database constraints I kind of go back and forth on database constraints because it feels to me like smearing business logic across the layers. Yeah. We wound up pulling a lot of them in our application after we, like I literally went through at one point all of the code that we had that was running after we charged the credit card line by line as to like, how can this fail in a way that's going to have somebody get angry at me? And is it worth having somebody get angry at me to keep this line of code in there? 
The database constraints are about when you find the errors on insertion or later when you try to read from it, right? And it's yeah. like saying, when should we find the errors? Oh, right now, while the customer's waiting on us. Yeah, right when we have the chance of like charging the customer and then failing is the best time to error check. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Dave Thomas said that the other thing I got out of his application was that he felt like the only kind of database constraint that was worth having was foreign key constraints, that those data integrity things were worth it. I kind of agree, but they also make unit testing a lot harder, especially in Rails. As Rails has moved towards more foreign key checking, um, it gets harder and harder to test active record objects in isolation. But that's, again, another kind of trade-off. We've gotten down into tactics again, but I think when you talked about when we're deciding how many database constraints to have, at some point you're describing a strategy that is the business decision. That is, how do we as a business want to handle these things? Which reminds me of your talk about being a developer who's also leading HR. And you had the same problem there where you found a lot of information about tactics, but little about strategy. Yeah. So I spent a, a little over a year as director of talent at TableXI, which put me in charge of internal recruiting and essentially all of the HR kind of stuff, uh, except for benefits that a small company might put up with. And yeah, so one of the things that I discovered looking out for literature on this is there's a lot of very tactical information about you should ask these questions in a technical interview. You should not ask these questions in a technical interview. This is what your job listing should look like. And there are very few like higher order resources. Like when do you know that you need to hire? How do you increase diversity on a team that doesn't have much turnover? Bigger picture questions about how you manage certain kinds of trade-offs in terms of balancing the needs of the company. For instance, balancing vacation time against an hourly consulting business uh, is really complicated and there's not a whole lot of guidance about that. I think it's it's kind of unusual. You know, I've seen uh, another company kind of have someone who um, led engineering and development move into talent. Are there particular strengths that you think that someone with an engineering background can bring to talent? I mean, you know, HR is around for a long time, and there's kind of a set way of kind of doing things. Was there anything that stood out? You said, hey, I think I I might be able to apply things differently in, in talent. Yeah, so there were definitely weaknesses. And like one of the themes of the talk is kind of like, I wasn't really a good fit for this. Um, there were some things about it that I was excited about and good at, and there were some things about it that I kind of struggled with. I think that one of the things that I brought to it was an understanding of what we were trying to do in the developer recruiting process. And I think that that was having an engineering perspective, like really designing that helped a lot. One of the things that I really tried to do and didn't do a super great job of was to, as a common issue at small companies, is that you don't really have, think about having much of an HR reporting process for even minor issues that people might have. And I think it's, it's really common, especially if you're a small company who kind of really hires well and has good people. Like you think of this as something that you don't necessarily need until you really, really need it. And we've been, you know, lucky for the most part, but I tried really hard to put together an HR like reporting path. And I kind of thought that we could potentially do one that went through me as the director of talent. And it turned out that for a a few reasons, like that didn't work out. And one of the reasons it didn't work out is because it was awkward for engineering coworkers to come to an engineer with that. I think, I think there may also be 
Like I'm potentially kind of socially awkward in one-on-one situations. And I think that that played a role too. I think that, that maybe I may almost certainly don't have as the kind of emotional intelligence that you really want in that role. So that's a limitation. And it's not a limitation of all engineers, certainly, but I think it was a limitation of this engineer. I think that I was in the Salieri position of kind of understanding all of the things that I couldn't do in a way that was frustrating because I couldn't do them. No, what is the Salieri position? The Salieri Mozart position of being able to appreciate greatness, but not being able to achieve it yourself. I think I was able to see what a good process would be without really being able to bring one out myself. HR is really hard to, it's hard to do and hard to get right. Um, it's something that GitHub is actually struggling with right now, especially around our hiring practices. And there's been some public um, discussion of GitHub's hiring practices. It's a really hard problem to solve. And it's good to see some emphasis on it. But have, has TableXI considered hiring someone who kind of specializes in some of these areas to educate you? Yeah, we we brought in a third party to do an exit interview of people to talk about not so much our hiring practices, but to talk about the company to do a pretty focused, uh, what turned out to be an exit interview that we were specifically trying to get questions answered about diversity and inclusion at the company. So we did do that. We brought in somebody to give us a, a once over from the outside looking at those issues. We have talked about having a, we have a dedicated, a person who handles benefits um, we've talked about having a part-time person to handle conflict resolution. Like a lot of small hourly companies, it's a priority issue as much as anything else. Like we do the best we can with with, with what we've got, and I advocate for the things that I can, and we do what we can. It's it it happens to be like the interesting thing about the TableXI example is it's a company that really is a very good place to work, and still kind of has some where people really really care about making it a great place to work, and things still aren't perfect which is a completely different problem than a place where nobody gives a damn, like people really care about it and we still struggle with this stuff. Earlier, you said that your web app lives and dies on how it handles failure and administration. Is that true of your company too? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that I, <laughs> I, I think that there is something to that. Like, you know, they talk about the, the, the sort of pithy line is like culture is the things you let happen. I think there's something to that. And and one of the things that we, we actually have tried to do is ask everybody to be really super, official it's not the right word, but to have everybody be super invested in the kinds of casual things that we let happen and the kinds of casual things that we don't let happen. And we're, that's something that we're really making an effort on here. I always like to talk about, you know, or things that, that come for me are, what are the, implement, the implications of the applications that we're creating? And this gets back into my whole thing about basic income <laughs> is, you know, when we sit down, I, I know like we don't really kind of think about some of these things because I know that I don't always do it either. But like I've been through this process, right, of implementing Stripe and kind of building out an application. But as a part of this, as a developer, I could also say I'm automating away a low skilled job there. So I wonder if we have a responsibility. And when we talk about culture at large as well, you know, I don't know if it's something that we should consider talking about down the road. You know, the way we build our companies, obviously, there's, you know, there's inclusion is also very important. But we also in automating things, right, we're, we're getting to a place where people used to do some of this stuff. You know, you would call in on the phone and make an order and someone would, you know, there's a call center to take this thing. Obviously, none of that is going to change at all. But I do wonder if, you know, as the panel or, or Noel, if, that, if that's anything that you've mm-hmm. kind of like thought about at all and say, hey, you know, I'm not saying we're destroying society at all, but the code that we write has implications outside of just our small, small business universe. Sorry, I know it was really long, but that's, that's what I've been thinking about this entire time. 
that goes way beyond what I was talking about in the talk in terms of culture and things like that. But it is something to consider, like in terms of the impact on the, the larger society, like we try to work with clients that we think are going to be you know, beneficial in that way. Do we do it all the time? No, but we certainly try to have clients that, that are aligned with what we're trying to do. When it comes to taking payment, and I'm speaking about Stripe's mission here, uh, Stripe's mission is to let more people participate in global commerce so that if someone used to work in a call center taking orders, maybe they have an idea to start their own business, or maybe they put things on Etsy or Shopify. And, and the more we can make it easy for more people to take other people's money, then we give them <laughs> alternatives. The interesting thing about this, and you know, we talk, we 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 live in a space that, in a culture that that is really enamored of the idea of disruption, and I think it's important to understand that like disruption has sort of by definition like unpredictable consequences. Like you never know who is going to benefit in the end and who's not going to benefit. And we see this in in the small and in the large. We see it in order things that might replace call centers. We see it in self-driving cars that may replace truckers or, 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 or cab drivers or things like that. And I think that it's tricky because it's hard to contain the technology once it's there, but it's also hard to know what the impact of these kinds of things are going to be. Like, I think it, it's really beneficial to try and have as many people as possible be able to participate in the economy of being able to take payments. I think like Stripe and Square, and there's a whole new kind of transactions that are feasible and whole new kinds of businesses that are feasible with that technology that were not feasible before. And that comes at a certain kind of cost. Uh, you know, there's a whole di- whole kind of employment that was feasible before that may not be feasible in the future. I don't know how to balance those trade-offs. And I think that I have larger political opinions about that that may or may not be interesting to anybody outside my head. But I certainly don't know how to balance the trade-offs within the technology community. I think it's hard to determine who will profit from a move, but it's impossible to determine who's going to profiteer <laughs> from it. Right. It, it, the nature yeah. of disruption is it's not directed. You're, you're going to detonate something and then you're going to see who can react to it, embrace the change the fastest. And yeah, there are going to be winners and losers. I think that's why it's really important to have teams that are made up of people with different backgrounds and experiences. I see a lot yeah. of quote unquote disruption coming out of Silicon Valley, which is just solving the problems of cisgender, heterosexual white guys. And if that's what our 20s. teams in their 20s and if that's what. If that's the source of disruption, then there are going to be societal consequences that are unanticipated. There was a talk at, at Windy City Rails last week um, that was about a Rails application. I'm sorry I don't have the details in front of me, but they, they built a Rails application to help people crowdsource water bills in Detroit and Baltimore, which are cities where if you don't pay your water bill, it gets put on your local property tax bill. And they, they've built a site to allow people to crowdsource one-time payments to get out of that problem. I'm like, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I'm probably not describing it right. But that's a case of of trying to disrupt uh, the problems of like single mothers who are in debt. And that's a case where, you know, a diverse team might try to disrupt other people's problems rather than the problems of 20 something tech workers. Yeah, that's a really interesting use of technology. Can we there's certainly all kinds of and, you know, this is going to be terrible because it's certainly not what I spend my day doing, unfortunately, maybe. But there's certainly all kinds of governmental and other services that are terribly hard to navigate that would certainly would be considered ripe for disruption if they were commercial services. I was just reminded of a tweet that I saw, and I wish I could remember who tweeted this. But if you're not thinking about how the software you're building can be used for abuse, then you're not doing your job. I'm reminded of a piece of software that is anonymous, location-based chat that has been used and abused for harassment purposes. And that's more the thing I was thinking about when it comes to you know who's doing the disruption. 
like, have they ever been a victim of harassment? Are they thinking about how a particular app could be used for harassment? Are they thinking about the repercussions of the thing that they're enabling with technology? Right. And that, that sort of ties us back towards why is it valuable even for a small company like ours to have diverse teams to include uh, voices to empower people within the company from all kinds of backgrounds to you know talk about what their issues are, to bring different perspectives to the table when we have a project so that all of these different perspectives are heard and that you know the, the more input you have, the more potential problems that you can head off before they go in the wild where they can actually hurt people. Uh, I'll go one step further, too. I, I think that we're in a place where, as engineers, we have the responsibility, I think, to the public at large um, mm-hmm. to also advocate on their behalf and being in a place where, hey, we're, we're, we're making great money. There's other opportunities that are there for us. And I think that's that's a part of that is saying that, yes, we need to bring people in, but we also need to be not just allies but accomplices yeah. for people who are in underrepresented communities. I think that's a piece of it. And there has been benefits too. I think one of the the things that I've noticed in some underrepresented communities is things like Stripe, right? And social media has allowed people to create small businesses within their homes that are doing really, really well, right? They're able to kind of hit the long tail of people within their communities and they're able to, you know, advertise at a much cheaper rate and not have to think about, hey, how do I utilize Stripe's API? You know, so there's also a beauty to, I think, some of the things that we're doing as well. But as we're looking at disruption for uh, taxi cab drivers or, you know, truck drivers and things of that nature, I think it's going to require us to advocate for, for people who aren't in um, in the positions yeah. that we have. You know. One thing I also want to say about diversity and inclusion within your team is that it's also worth thinking about diversity, not just in terms of people's experiences, but also in terms of people's personalities. A really common issue, I think, is especially in an engineering culture is introvert, extrovert where if you're the extrovert who's the person who's raising your hand at the meeting, you get heard. I mean, that's an issue that's separate and orthogonal from all of these other really important issues, but it can also prevent some of these other issues uh, from coming to the table in a team if people are not the kind of people who want to shout out for whatever reason don't feel comfortable doing that. That's an issue that almost every, I would imagine that that many engineering teams sort of struggle with. And it's something that may be preventing all kinds of different perspectives from coming to the table. At a previous job, I was on a team where two of us were remote and both of us who were remote were women. And the team's sort of MO was strong opinions loosely held, which led to a very argumentative sort of approach to problem solving. Dialectic. Yeah, neither I nor the other woman on the team felt comfortable arguing and expressing strong opinions because we wanted to, we had a different approach to problem solving. And also the fact of being remote meant that we didn't really, no one could read the cues for when we were ready to talk, when we were ready to participate. They would sort of steamroll over us. So um, I think that addressing that kind of issue at the cultural level can exclude or include people with different communication styles, which may intersect with different kind of populations. Right. And that comes back to all kinds of things. Like I can tie this all the way back because we talked about Georgia Tech right at the top. And one of the reasons I'm there instead of another school is I visited another school and I learned that part of their culture was what they called Friday afternoon fights where uh, somebody would come in and deliver their work and the goal of everyone else was to heckle them so much that they couldn't get past their first slide, was to ask so many questions. I was like, I am not. This is not a culture. 
this is not a culture that I'm interested in participating in. But And then this comes all the way back to like the kinds of companies we work at. This comes back to how we present our job listings. You know, I recently read a job listing that was like talking about you. It was like, if programming languages were weapons, Ruby would be your weapon of choice. It's like, uh, I don't know. Uh, that's not, I don't know that I like that. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that tie in, in, yeah, in big ways, in, in big ways and small ways. Yeah. In big ways and small ways. And it comes back again to looking for those failure cases, because when you invite uh, people with broad experiences to the table and give them the opportunity to speak, then you're actually looking for the failure cases. It's much easier in a meeting to focus on the happy path of the things we agree on. And it's a totally different culture that says, no, we really want to hear about how this might not be quite right. Mm -hmm. There was an interesting experiment in the 50s carried out by a sociologist named Solomon Ash. It was a conformity experiment. And um, I talk about this in one of my talks. He would have a panel of seven or eight men. And he told the one participant in the experiment, so one out of the seven or eight, that they would be participating in a test of visual acuity. And he would hold up a card with a line on it and then hold up another card with three lines on it labeled A, B, and C and ask which line A, B, or C is the same height as the other line. And what he demonstrated is if the majority of people that were his confederates in the experiment gave the wrong answer. The last person to answer who was the actual subject of the experiment was almost 50% more likely to go with the wrong answer rather than go against the group. So if you imagine that in a meeting situation where you have some very vocal people who are talking about the right solution, just human psychology dictates that in a homogenous group, everyone is more likely to go along with the first suggestion that people put forward or the first couple of suggestions, especially if they're worded very strongly. And some people have more weight than others as well. Like if you're the the manager or the tech lead and you put forth a suggestion, people are not going to disagree with it the way they would if it was just if someone else said it. Or if you're the person with the most experience at the company or the most prestige, you can shut people down before they mm-hmm. even open their mouths. Right. That's a, that's a power that you don't really want to you want to use very sparingly if you're in a situation yeah. where you have that kind of weight. I have probably counseled no fewer than three different vice presidents of engineering, taken them aside and said, you used to be the team lead and you were used to saying, how about if we try this? Have you noticed that since you became VP, when you say, how about we tried this, there are no competing theories? That's because when the VP says, how about we try this, everyone hears, you will try this. Yeah, I think that's a very hard thing to get used to, I would imagine. I only have very limited experience with it. It's a very hard thing to get used to that that sort of transition between, you know, when you when you are used to being in a situation where you are sort of one of a team and you are suddenly put in the situation of being the team lead. That implies a transition in your style, in your conversational style, in your meeting style that I think is a hard adjustment for some people. Yeah. My manager at work said once that it gets in the way a lot for leaders to have opinions. Nice. Nice. I think there's an important distinction, though, right? Because there are people out there that are listening to this right now going, no, if somebody doesn't stand up and have an opinion, we'll never get anything done, right? There's a time and a place for extroverts to have their dialectic and argue, but there's also a time for people to say, this is the direction we will go. We will, you know, we're going this way. Yeah. And And as a designated leader, as a VP, it is your job to say that at some point. The problem is you can't say anything before that. Yeah. It sounds like you've right. made a decision. When, when you say that you're ending the conversation and you need to be careful that you're ending the conversation yeah. after all the viewpoints yeah. have come in. 
I work a lot with junior developers and I do mentoring at work of junior developers on my team. And um, I feel like it's my job as a senior engineer to make sure that everyone's voice is heard. Now, I'm not in a position of authority on the team. I'm not the manager, but I need to make sure that everyone has a chance to express their opinion because even as a senior, I have influence. And if I say, this is my opinion on how we do it, the juniors are going to assume that I've done it before and that that's the way we should go. And they may have a, a fresh perspective on things because they have not been doing it for 20 years and they don't have those ingrained habits and those sort of right. knee-jerk reactions to, oh, this is the natural solution to this problem. That's when the stupid questions are the best questions. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's something from the Picard Management Tips Twitter account uh, from a while back about how, you know, you got to solicit everybody's ideas independently and then come to yeah. a decision afterward. Yeah, I actually had a weird experience with this non-technically, but the first time when I was in college and I directed a show, I was you know director of like a small one-act play and I was asking one of my friends was the actor and he asked, I asked how it was going and he was like, you know, Noel, sometimes you just have to direct and give an opinion, like, and tell us, like, what the right answer is. And I think that you give everybody the chance to have their input, but at some point, you do have to actually pick a direction. Yeah. And that the dynamic of when to do one and when to do the other is what makes leading a team, I think, hard. Yeah. One of the many things. And getting the right choice, right? Getting the, you, you're going to, you're going to well, shut down some of the conversation and you're going to, in order to increase the contrast and discrimination between the, the free variables that are left in the choice. And you have to get the free variables right. And it's so obvious when somebody is deliberately trying to manipulate the conversation by pre-deciding the free variable, the only free variable that you care about, Yeah. right? It, it's also where I think another thing Warren mentioned is something that like is actionable that everybody here can do in their projects like right now that will help with this is to have team retrospectives on a fairly regular basis where you're not under the gun of making a pressured decision uh, you get everybody in a room and you set up a structure where every, you know, a lot of times a retrospective like this, people start by writing down things they want to talk about on sticky notes or something like that, which is often a way to get people into the conversation who wouldn't otherwise jump into a conversation. And that's a really good way to start identifying, like, what are the pain points that the team is actually having and try to find one of those pain points and pick an action item that makes it better. Like, and that's something that anybody on any team can start to do like this week is to have a team retrospective of just how are things going. In um, one job I had, we decided in our retrospectives that we would go in order when it came time to like talk about the topics that were raised, go in order from the most junior developers to the most senior developers to make sure that their concerns were addressed and also that their perspectives were recognized. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, I think another thing that's important, um, especially for teams that have a mix of experiences, is demonstrating, like actually demonstrating that it's safe to fail. So in addition to a retrospective, sometimes a project goes terribly wrong and the technical decision that you made early on was not the right decision. And you might want to have a postmortem where you say, where you own up to it and say, I thought that this was the right approach and I was wrong. And as a senior developer, one of the most important things you can say is I was wrong. Yeah, it's interesting how that kind of dovetails nicely to the beginning of the, the call, right, the beginning of the podcast, in that it sounds like there were some questions around, hey, well, at what point in time do I make this jump into utilizing Stripe, right? At what point in time do I pick up some of this stuff? And then, Noel, I know you mentioned a couple of alternatives there, but there's this whole process, I think, that happens before you, I mean, that's where kind of maybe some folks are 
well aware of this process that should happen before determining, hey, I know I need to take payments for a thing. Do I go through and look through some Stripe API documentation and kind of, you know, try to build out something of my own? Or can I really kind of hack something together that allows me to kind of put together, you know, an MVP and then have more information and kind of go through the same process that you're describing, you know, whether it's you and like the people who care about you and care about the thing that you're trying to develop or if you're working on a team. So that's kind of uh, interesting. It looks like we're kind of making our way around full circle here. Sometimes the hardest decision is when do we make the decision? So um, I think we're about at the end of our time. I would like to know, Noel or panelists, like what was your favorite thing that we talked about? And what's, um, what's something you're going to take away from the show and think about a little more after we're done recording? I think that taking back the thing that I took in from this is thinking a little bit more about the impact of our applications and how they work in the real world context. That's not the thing I, you know, I came in with. So that's the thing I received from this conversation to go out and uh, talk. It's like that, not that it's not something I've never thought about, but it was the thing that came to me from this show most strongly. I think one of the more interesting things is that we started off talking about how to take money on the web and we ended off so far off in the weeds that we realized this is where the road needs to go, that it wasn't like a distraction or a derailment. It was like a no, this is where we want to go. And I absolutely love that we threw out some things that were just like, what are we going to do here? And like Noel just had, here's what you should try. You should, here's, here's a process that you can put in place. Try this at your next meeting. The book Crucial Conversations talks about a concept called the pool of shared meaning. And when you have a really difficult subject to talk about, we all kind of stand around this pool and we, we throw ideas into it and we fish ideas out and we come to a shared meaning here. And there are people who will try to control the pool by withdrawing from it because they don't feel safe. And there are people that will try to charge headlong into it to try and drive people away from the pool in order to enforce meaning. And we've talked a little bit about how a vice president has to be careful or someone in a senior leadership, I keep saying VP, but anyway, somebody in a senior leadership position has to be careful that they don't express an opinion that comes out sounding like a decision before people have put their input into the pool of meaning. And we talked a lot about how to get introverts to come forward. We started off talking about a lot of people saying, you know, I'm not going to go to the Friday night fight kind of thing. And I'm curious this is less of a touch point and more of a, a thing to touch on. And then I, I want to give this uh, back to Noel as a, for, for comment. We've talked a lot about how to get introverts to come forward. Is there more to that? Is there something that we could tell an introvert who's sitting around a pool of shared meaning and nobody else has heard this podcast? What can we give you, dear listener? What can, what can Noel give you to help you step forward? into the, you know, basically say, Hey, what about this? I think that it's, you don't want it necessarily to be on the introverts. It, just like in a lot of other situations, you don't want it to be on the introvert to create the environment that makes them feel comfortable. Like that's on the group yes. to create the environment that makes yeah. the person feel comfortable. There's a book that we had everybody here read called quiet, which is about introverts. The author's name is Susan Kane, and it's about introverts. The subtitle is the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. Um, and it has a lot of how to allow introverts to have a role in processes that are typically like sort of dominated by the loud voices. So I would hope that our listeners, one of the things they walk away with is the inspiration to look at their teams, look at their meetings, look at their discussions and see if they are, in fact, leaving room for everyone to participate equally. Yeah, and that doesn't look like at the very end saying, hey, anybody got, got any questions and waiting 15 seconds and saying, okay, great. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> I have a takeaway from what Dave just said, which is we started talking about accepting payments on the web 
and we found something greater than code. Oh, snap! <laughs> Way to Love bring it. it home. It wasn't weeds that we wandered into. It was a garden. Is this the point where we all start chuckling and then the and then we freeze and the credits rise up against it? You say greater than code. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're gonna all right. jump in the we're gonna all jump in the air and then freeze frame. That's but right. Don't You're probably wondering frame. how I got myself into this situation. Jay, did you have a takeaway? I was just ruminating on just all of the awesomeness that this is. You know, Noel's point about hey, a good example uh, is that like HR and talent initiatives sometimes are trivialized until like there's a oh shit moment, right? Your company's name is in the press, and then and then Noel just says, ah, oh, pretty much summed it up like, ah, uh, you know, I, I work on hard problems, but that shit is hard. It's pretty much <laughs> the way I'll sum up what he said. So you know that is, <laughs> I think that. That that shows that um, you know if we watch watch what I'm about to do, try to do here, you know if if we want to try to work on hard stuff, the hardest problems to solve are the things that are greater than code, and that's kind of that's what I what I've heard from Noel so far. At least that's what I think I heard. That was awesome, right? And to tie it all the way back to the payment stuff, like a lot of the problems that are hard there become personal problems because they're problems about how workflow works. You know, how do we empower? administrators how do we decide who has the ability to do what how do we decide what happens in strange conditions like all of those things are isomorphic to the problems that we have as software teams in terms of deciding complicated procedures and things like that honestly i'm gonna have to go back and listen to this call again like three times just to get everything that everybody said but one thing that really grabbed my attention was just a small snippet of something jay said earlier about being not just allies but accomplices and i really i really want to try and take that to heart maybe i should like get a tattoo or something but uh like, there's so much to unpack just from that little phrase. I love the economy of words that you use there. I'm going to have to think about that. Well, this has been a really great conversation, and I think it's a really great first episode. Noel, I want to thank you so much for being a part of this. If people do want to buy your book, how do they get a hold of it? Sure. So the book is available at pragprog.com. It's called Take My Money, Accepting Payments on the Web, slash book, slash NR WebPay, I think is the URL. I really also want to mention the cover, which uh, I really like. They picked a great a uh, sort of stock image for it. It's a shopping cart uh, made out of a mouse cord. And it's one of my favorite things about the book. So the pragprog.com. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Noel Rapp, N-O-E-L-R-E-P. And you can follow me on the web at noelrappin.com uh, and TableXI, which is a great place to work and a great place to work with uh, is at tablexi.com. Great. Thank you so much. So um, we hope everyone has enjoyed Dread Coder Roberts. Good night, <laughs> listeners. Good work. Sleep well. And I'll most likely kill you in the morning. <laughs> you say that every night. <laughs>